0: Hi there and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the mirror, mirror on the wall edition. My name is Sarah O'Donnell. I'm the journal's assignment editor. I'm here in the newsroom studio on the morning of Friday, March 6th, and happily I've got company. With me are Graham Thompson, Provincial Affairs columnist. Hello. And Provincial Affairs reporter Miriam Ibrahim. Hello. Paula Simon, city columnist, should be joining us shortly. We'll add her into the mix when she gets here. The Alberta budget and the state of our province's finances continue to dominate the headlines this week and in several different ways with some rather weird results. So let's just start with the basics. First of all, we finally have a date for the 2015-16 budget, this
1: much anticipated financial document. When is it? Well, uh, we finally were told after weeks of ambiguity uh, that it will be happening on uh, March 26th. Interestingly, it was that date was released yesterday, uh, Wednesday, sorry, Thursday, uh, which uh, I'm sure we're going to get to this, obviously, but it was uh, in the middle of all of the uproar online over uh, the premier's comments on uh, CBC radio about uh, Albertans needing to look in the mirror to see who's responsible for the province's financial mess. Uh, So uh, many cynics, myself included, (laughs) suspected that that was a ploy by the government to sort of change the channel by giving us the budget date uh, clearly didn't work but now we do have a date within a few weeks we're going to be seeing what this really drastic uh, and tough budget will look like.
2: So, you know, so it's, it's the 26th of March late in the, the month I'm expecting then an election to be called the following Monday perhaps the 30th which means the election date will be April
0: 27th. Oh another thing for me to add to my calendar and I just should add welcome Paulus to the studio. I'm sorry.
3: <laughs> Oh. I've dragged myself from my sickbed because I would not miss an edition of the press gallery. Oh, thank you so much, Paula. I, I, I looked at the mirror and the picture was not pretty. This <laughs> oh, well, that's
0: okay. You look you look lovely <laughs> yeah. to me. Well, we were just talking about the good news, about the fact that there's an actual budget date for well, us. Well, so. that
3: might be good news for reporters who are trying to plan their schedule. I doubt it's going to be good news for anybody who's waiting to see what that's going to mean for cities, for school boards, for universities, for public sector unions, for the arts sector, for the not-for-profit sector. Not going to be a good news,
0: We'll talk a bit more about that but you know you'd think there'd be some good news but it has not been a great week for Premier Jim Prentice. I was surprised by how this has gone because he's been giving a lot of speeches and done a lot of talk radio and that's normally a good thing right to have the Premier out there giving his message.
1: So Miriam Graham Pollock tell me what's gone wrong this week. Well, it was interesting. I mean, the Premier has been for uh, quite a while talking about everybody needing to band together and share in the burden. Uh, and, you know, we've we got into this mess together, and we're going to get out of it together. Uh, I think what got him into trouble, though, this week when he made the comments about needing to look in the mirror, was it really seemed to put the blame squarely on Albertans, who turned around and said, well, wait a minute, you're the guys who've been in power for 40 years. Uh, you know, the Premier may not have been around for 40 years, but certainly his party has been. And so for a lot of people that just rang as pretty unfair uh, and and he seemed to be getting he, he seems to be getting a little bit frustrated because you know the, he he does have to deliver this sort of doom and gloom message over and over again and I think he just went a little bit too far
0: was it that different from what he said before when you when you look at the comments Graham? and
2: in a larger context you could say no he has talked about us being in this together but this idea of look in the mirror to see who's to blame for this that to me, stepped over a line. In politics, a politician should never blame the voters, even when you think the voter is wrong. Especially
3: when the (coughs) voters voted for you.
2: Well, I was getting to that point. There's two issues here. One is, in a way, he's right. Albertans do want the low taxes and the high spending and the the no-deficit budgets. Mm -hmm. But they've been told that for years. Don't worry. Vote for the conservatives. They'll get all of that. So if he's blaming the um, you know all of us, meaning the people look in the mirrors, he means he's blaming the voters for voting and the conservatives for for decades. So this is backfiring on him for a couple of reasons. Um, one is of course the the opposition and the uh, labor unions, the public sector unions actually have now a target to go after him. He seems to be usually in his speeches attacking the. Uh, public sector unions and the workers and and people from doctors to teachers to nurses whatever they're beginning to push back especially the public sector uh, unions also by attacking uh, Albertans um, he's made this, it was a Twitter war yesterday, he's made this an issue people actually can grasp onto. People who don't normally follow politics now will start looking at this saying, what the heck is this guy doing? Now mm-hmm. there,
3: there is a way, Sarah, when you have an economy in crisis, when you have a, a province that faces challenges, that a good leader can rally people who can say, you know, suppose his message had been, yes, we've had a good time up till now, and now all together we have to talk about what we need to do to put our finances in order for the good of our children and grandchildren. That's not the messaging. The messaging is, you bad, naughty Albertans, while I was off in, you know, in Toronto and Ottawa, you have been very naughty, and now you must go to your rooms. I think it was that hectoring you know, 50 Shades of Grey tone that now I'm going to come... now <laughs> I'm gonna, 50 Shades now of I'm gonna, Now I'm going to come and discipline you, and you're going to enjoy the discipline, because I well. am, you know... I mean, there there is something that I, I think pushed people over the edge this week, but I think it's more than that. I mean, part of it has to do with the fact that somebody on Twitter, and I don't know who gets the credit. I don't know if it was Marty Chan. I don't know who, who actually... I should find out who came up with this hashtag, uh, Prentice Blames Albertans, because... You know it it sort of ignited a social firestorm on social media but I think it's also um, I think it's a culmination of a lot of things that have happened since December I think it started with Prentice's sort of gleeful suing of most of the Wildrose caucus it had to do with Bill 10 it had to do with Prentice's countermanding the decision to give money back to the Auditor General I think people have seen a pattern of bullying behavior and up until now you know, sort of the the zeitgeist has been, oh, well, he's going to win anyway and there's nothing we can do about it. And this week, I think, marked an important psychological turning point for Albertans where they sort of woke up and said, wait a minute. You know, we don't have to vote for him. Maybe, mm. you know, I, I I don't think there's any danger that this is the week that Jim Prentice lost the election. But I think people have kind of come out of the ether and realized you know, uh, if this was the Prince Charming they thought was going to, you know, slay Alberta's dragons and rescue us, it's not going to happen.
0: How come he's not getting any, I guess, leeway for just having maybe a a kind of slip of the tongue on the radio or just not... not when you're in live radio, it's hard. As I know from even just doing this podcast, <laughs> I misspeak from time to time, and I have to correct myself. But I, I, how I come think he's there? I think part of it is there?
2: the response yesterday. He was not He headed to Ottawa, I think, for the Manning Center um, conference. Yeah. Conference, So uh, he wasn't around to do a, a scrum with the media himself. He, had, he sent out um, Mandel, Stephen Mandel, the health minister, and Robin Campbell, the finance minister, in a little scrum in Calgary yesterday to... Explain. Look, this was taken out of context, but well, it wasn't.
1: It <laughs> was, mean, was out not, out not only that. A live radio It wasn't taken out of context, but both of both of them said that, and then admitted neither of them had actually listened to the interview, nor had they read <sighs> read the outrage on Twitter or or Facebook or anything like that. So for a lot of people, it was just two of his top senior senior cab- two of his senior cabinet ministers coming out to try to. Paint over it all as if nothing had happened, and then uh, you know that o- would only further uh, enrage people because they feel like they're they're not being taken seriously. And I think also what's really important to point out is that his tone, Prentice's tone, has shifted. You know, even a month ago, he was talking about things like the flat tax hurts the working poor. H- we don't hear him say things like that anymore. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are saying that this there there has been a really slow and steady shift to the right, um, where you know those kinds of more moderate or progressive sort of statements are just not being heard anymore and so for a lot of people they're sort of wondering where he's taking the government um and 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 further to that you know he is doing a lot of these radio show call-ins that's true i don't know how many of them he's going to do anymore after what happened this week Um, (laughs) i hope he doesn't stop but uh you know they're they're for, for a lot of people, and, and you know, I, I often will tweet along as he's doing them, and a lot of people point out that he's not actually answering the questions that are being asked. He's sort of responding with these talking points that people have heard over and over again. So I think that sort of answers your question about why people aren't willing to give him any forgiveness or leeway for misspeaking, because they've, they've sort of heard a shift in tone o- from, mm-hmm. you know, over the last few months.
3: Plus, he did a follow-up interview with Don Braid, and you know, there's that old expression, when you find yourself in a hole, stop digging, and instead he went on talking to Braid about we have to take individual responsibility. Well, you know what? I think Albertans do have to take a measure of responsibility for accepting their Ralph bucks and for allowing this government to skate by on false promises. But it would be nice to see the government taking some responsibility. I mean, it is surreal for the premier, who's leading a government that's been in power for 44 years, to stand up and say, you Albertans, this is all your fault. How dare you elect us on the campaign promises that we made i mean it i it, i think it's it's the irony of the double think that people have just finally said you know what what yeah. are you what are you like what are you what? talking it's about really, i feel
0: like i feel like i'm kind of missing something because i haven't gotten quite as worked up about this as i have as as many many people have so i feel like i'm missing something but you guys have laid out why people why <laughs> it bothers think, so many people so. i think just
2: to follow with <clears throat> one point that. Um, Pardon me. Uh, I've already infected. I you. I think I'm catching cold already. <laughs> 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 They're rocketing sick. Um, going back to your point about you know blaming Albertans, and he wasn't here. You're right because when we ask him questions from the media about uh, various government policies, for example, the labor laws, this this you know the old labor laws, he goes, "I wasn't here." <laughs> and <laughs> the question is <laughs> really disingenuous. It, 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 it becomes a monotonous. He keeps saying, "I wasn't here. I wasn't here at the time. I wasn't here." <clears throat> and he, that does play to the narrative that listen when you were running up all this debt and all the, the deficits over the years and and overspending i wasn't here mm-hmm. and that and i he he'll deny he's trying to say that that's the message that comes through whenever we try and pin him down on some, a lot of issues he wasn't here for it.
1: And it's re- and, and as I say, it's really disingenuous because frankly it's been a PC government for four decades, mm-hmm. you know. So, you know, he, he tries to to get away with referring to it as previous governments. Well it's the same government. Mm-hmm. Um and, and further to that, many of the people who still hold all of the positions of power within cabinet are the same people who held the positions of power in, in Redford's uh, cabinet, but for example. But you know what, Sarah?
3: You're absolutely right. We are to blame. We elect them year in, year out. This is the government we wanted. Um, when I said to people on Twitter, you know, if you don't want this government, you could vote for a different one, people say, oh, well, no, we, we couldn't. But you know what? You could. Well, that's a novel,
0: novel idea, Paula. <laughs> you and your crazy, <laughs> crazy, crazy talk.
3: idea of democracy. Oh, so radical.
0: Well, also on the topic of budget, before he started, Trending on Twitter in a way that he probably didn't like. Um, the premier was talking about this message that March, the March twenty sixth budget will be is this is his quote you know the most significant budget in modern times in the province and it will have impacts on every single person in the province. What's the strategy behind this? We kind of talked a little well, if bit. Well, he's bringing
2: about down a bad news the budget. He has to convince people that it's actually necessary. And part of the problem is they've done. I was told they've done surveys showing that forty as four zero percent of Albertans don't really believe things are that bad. And so he has to try and maintain this monotonous drum beat of bad news, bad news, bad news. And also another problem is we saw the third quarter report a few weeks ago talking about a big surplus and R- 6. F- t- For
0: the current fiscal year. Yeah, right. 500 million surplus. Right,
2: right so. roughly. And you've got uh, $6.3 billion in the cash account, the contingency account, a lot of money. And he was predicting a deficit for this current year just back in January. And all of a sudden, six weeks later, he got it wrong. So he has to try and convince people, look, I, when I talk about a $7 billion hole and the new, the new budget coming up, I really, really mean it. We really have to, to change things. So he's trying to go a lot of changes. And he's, he's tending to not just talk about this year, he's talking about you know $20 billion deficit over three years if we don't change uh, the way of doing things. So he's trying to make things even worse. It's a narrative to try and convince Albertans that things are really bad, and once again only the government, only the conservatives the ones that can actually make this right i
0: mean that's what gail vaz oxley does until debt do you part she shows families how if you keep spending at the rate you're going over the next five years you'll be usually like a million dollars in debt. So it kind of, it, it seems like a smart thing to do to show you how thing bad things well, could I get mean, if the, it builds the, up over time and the, you don't make changes. This
3: is presuming that the Saudis keep flooding the market with cheap oil. Mm. I mean, we have to remember that the, the deflation in the price of oil is not a natural economic cyclical phenomenon. And, you know, if OPEC doesn't maintain Uh, its stance on low oil prices we could be in a completely different fiscal scenario 18 months from now Mm. so you have to wonder to what extent when when is talking about a 20 billion dollar hole in the budget to what extent is he using the current low price of oil which is very low let's not let's not misunderstand that this is going to have an impact but it seems almost like a pretext, a, a pre—you know—an excuse to go after public sector unions, to go after government programs that he doesn't support in the first place. Mm, so,
0: Merritt, tell me, uh, since Paul has gone to public sector unions, tell me how the premier's language and the government's l- language on public sector workers changed this week. What there
1: was, a, there was an, I guess, an evolution in that. Well, well, I, he's really signaled a. a ch- I, big change in direction, um, what he's trying to do is, it, during a speech this week to the uh, Rotary Club at Edmonton, he said that what he's going to be doing is, he's, he's struck a new uh, task force, uh, it's going to be led by Tim Grant, who's the Deputy Minister of Alberta Justice and Solicitor General, and uh, they're going to be looking at uh, jurisdictions across Canada and how they um, handle collective bargaining with the public sector labor unions. And s- specifically, they're going to be looking first at the BC model, where everything is organized under one uh, committee that falls under the finance ministry. It's called the Public Sector Employers Council. And what it does is it puts out a mandate that says any sort of negotiations or bargaining that happens has to fall within this framework. You know, for example, one year it was a, zero, a net zero mandate. The, 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 at the end deal has to come out net zero. Uh, and Or, you know, a, a few years later it was 1%. I talked to some labor unions in BC about that, and they said that what that has done is really created a top-down approach to bargaining. It's really, and it's depressed wages, and it's uh, led to, you know, really tense and 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 tough negotiations that go on. But that's what Prentice wants to do here. He really wants to centralize it. Um, and, you know, it, he makes a point, I think we've talked about this on previous podcasts, about talking about, you know, over the next three years, there's going to be $2.6 billion in, in um, uh, contracts that have to be, paid out um, uh, to two labor unions and and two workers in the public sector.
2: And he's not happy with that. Additional dollars. Additional dollars.
1: These are deals that have been signed by, you know, previous premiers um, and that sort of thing. And he's not happy about that. And he makes a point of saying that. Uh, So what he wants to do is follow this new model where everything is centralized and where it sort of is directed from the upper echelons of government, uh, which the labor unions say is not the way negotiations should be going in every case. And then further to that, there was that uh, Supreme Court ruling um, out of Saskatchewan um, obviously saying that public sector workers have the right to strike. Well, in Alberta, public sector workers have not had the right to strike since the mid-70s. And so the government is going to need to have to bring our laws in line with that uh, and so they're talking about creating some s- essential services categories as well those discussions are going to be led by Jobs Minister Mc- uh, uh, Rick McIver um, but it does sound like there are going to be uh, some changes there where some public sector workers are finally going to be given the right to strike which they have not had the opportunity to do for decades.
0: So is the campaign announced yesterday by the unions, is this a direct response to that comment by no. Jim Prentice? No, they,
3: they, had it, they had it planned in advance and the AFL is quite pleased with itself because they had a whole kind of shtick in their campaign about looking in the mirror and, you know, they, they, they were giggling on Twitter yesterday that they managed to come up with a campaign. Oh, they were
1: beside themselves because it just happened to, to work out with <laughs> this whole mirror, mirror thing. Yeah.
3: But, but you know, there's, there's an issue here that goes beyond public sector unions because I think, you know, a, a lot of us might make an argument that public sector wages do need a, a modicum of uh, moderation. But to me, this isn't just about an attack on unions. It's about about an attack on the autonomy of institutions like universities. Uh, I mean, a university... Has a ma- maintains a certain kind of power and self control when it negotiates with its own unions. If everything is going to be centralized, what does that say about the autonomy of post secondary institutions? Uh, what does it say about the autonomy of Alberta Health Services or and school or, boards? Or, ha. Well, ha. Yeah, well, yes, <laughs> I exactly. Laugh at that one yes, exactly. Well. Yes, we laugh. I mean, school 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 boards already lost this. Right. Lost I won't. Time I won't go. go on my rant. Um, and, and Alberta Health Services is an imaginary autonomy, autonomous institution, but universities are a kind of a separate case. University professors traditionally have an intellectual autonomy that comes with tenure in which they have a relationship with the university management. They don't see themselves as civil servants working for the government. And I think that that's where the loudest pushback is going to be, not from the unions, perhaps, but from the professoriate.
0: I'm going to give the last word to Graham on this topic. Is this something you've seen before, this idea of centralizing? I was kind of thinking about what Alison Redford did. She had a group of cabinet ministers who tried to do something the like this. Public Sector Resource
1: Committee. Yes. Yeah,
2: headed by Tom Thomas LeCasse. So they have been looking at these issues before. And the thing about Prentice, I'll give him this uh, sort of grudging respect on his front. As a, he is trying to do things differently, and you could argue that it's time to get things under control in terms of getting us off the oil price roller coaster. We all agreed on that. The problem he's facing is he's going to do it by it seems to be cutting spending, not changing the tax structure and here we go again every week we got to mention that the tax structure in I Alberta. We need to get
0: those t-shirts. <clears throat>
2: yes. Um, so he's I think he's, he's his goal is laudable in terms of making things more dependable in terms of getting off this roller coaster ride but uh, he's going about it and to me in a way it's going to poke a lot of people the wrong way especially the public sector unions he's actually given them some ammunition now for the upcoming election when it comes to the NDP particularly the liberals as well to, to push back against the government
0: well Thank you for all of that I'd like us now to look in the mirror And reflect on our good stuff from the gallery (laughs) That's our weekly segment of the show Where we offer up a recommendation For a piece of journalism or pop culture Or even high art that's caught our interest We try, though don't always succeed To give it a political connection Miriam, start us off, we're going to there's going to be rapid fire, good stuff from the gallery. All right,
1: so um, mine is a piece from the New York Times on March 3rd. It's not really political, but it, I guess it sort of could be tangentially. It's a really great, um, uh, well-reported piece called "In Chapel Hill, Suspects' Rage Went Beyond a Parking Dispute." And this is uh, referring to the case of uh, those three um, university students who were shot and killed in in, in their condo in Chapel Hill. Um, it uh, appeared in the newspaper, in the New York Times on March 3rd by It's by Jonathan M. K hates. Um, it's a, it's an, it's just a really well reported piece. It sort of goes into um, the the sort of fear that these uh, three students sort of had of this neighbor who would often um, show them outrage and, and and they were so scared they they asked their friends and neighbors not to park in the parking lot uh, that sort of thing but they it also notes that his behavior uh, began to change after um, uh, the, the one uh, the fellow Dia his wife moves in with him and she wears a hijab and sort of this guy's uh, behavior begins to change after that because she's sort of marked as a visible uh, minority so I, I thought that was a really well um,
2: done uh, piece and I encourage people to read it
0: oh, thank you That's that sounds, sounds interesting. Graham, you've got a magazine here. W- you're cracking open. I what actually, have you
2: got? I mentioned this a few weeks ago. Uh, I read it online. I've actually got the copy of National Geographic. It's the War on Science. I'm sure mm. my colleagues here. Yes. Um, so I read it before online. This is actually the glossy edition. It's a March edition of... Uh, National Geographic, and it's called The War on Science. It has some statements at the front. Climate change does not exist. Evolution never happened. Vaccinations can lead to autism. Of course, these are all false Mm -hmm. statements. And it's talking about uh, why reasonable people uh, don't believe science. And it explains that it's a really well-done essay um, (laughs) explaining this. It also includes... um, some issues regarding, you know, Twitter, things like this. Before, people who had really fringe ideas had no one to talk to. <laughs>
3: they had no audience. They had no constituency. Exactly,
2: and now they can talk to each other on, you know, Facebook and Twitter, and that emboldens them to say, look, you know, this is are, we, we can talk to each other, and then we can sort of fight this. Also, Twitter means that they can actually talk, in a sense, to people in power. Mm-hmm. Um, there was actually uh, i watched I think on YouTube, but Jimmy Kimmel. Uh, he's a Late night talk show host who's actually getting his child vaccinated, good for him. He talked about that, and then the flood of people who were against it tweeting him, you know, calling him mm-hmm. all kinds of names. And he began reading some of these um, tweets on air. In a sense, that gives them a platform as well, all the deniers in terms of um, um, vaccinations. Anyway, so this is a really interesting uh, article about. Um, People should be more reasonable um, when it comes to science, but often they're not.
3: Well, I think we should put up the link to the Jimmy Kimmel, too. Mm,
0: That's a good idea. Okay, I'll do both of those. Um, I'm going to go to uh, an audio item. Uh, This American Life's episode 549, which was broadcast last week, was called Amateur Act. And I specifically want to recommend the third segment of that uh, episode called Commander in Brief. The whole thing was, I love the whole show, but this particular one, Commander in Brief, I loved because it was about the person who subs in for the American president on the night of the State of the Union. And that person is called the designated survivor. And I just love the idea of this, first of all. And so the, that person's job is they have to stay away from Congress. They can't be there. And uh, as Stephanie Fu, the re- producer who reported this segment, says, that's their whole job, to survive. And you know, if something happened in the event that Congress blows up, they, they would be there to run the United States government as an amateur president. Total beginner. And I love this line who she says, whose first day on the job could include wreaking vengeance upon slash surrendering to whoever killed all our top leaders.
1: <laughs> so and,
0: and it's eight and a half minutes, and I enjoyed it because it's fun to hear what the different designated survivors, this is like the transportation secretary or you know the energy the secretary of energy or the secretary of uh interior affairs. It's fun to hear like kind of what they did with their time. Some went to bunkers, it depends what era it is, some went to friends' homes and watched TV some got training and played war games and one guy talks about how he went out for dinner and he had this whole SWAT team with him and then all of a sudden the State of the Union's over and They all leave him and he and his daughter just have to take a taxi home. (laughs) So it was really fun. And so next time I watch the State of the Union, I'll wonder, who is the designated survivor this time? And Paula, wrap us up.
3: I'm going to wrap us up with a beautiful photo essay from The Guardian, um, which is pictures of young women in Paris, London and New York all rocking their hijab. Um, it's an absolutely beautiful idea and in this week in which I've been fighting with people on Facebook and Twitter all week on this subject I'm very pleased and thrilled to recommend this beautiful photo essay from The Guardian
0: and on that note we will wrap up that's it for this week my thanks again to today's panelists Paula, Graham and Miriam And thanks to journal videographer Sean Butts for recording a video segment of our conversation. You can find that video clip along with previous episodes of the podcast on the Edmonton Journal's website, edmontonjournal.com. The audio versions of the podcast are in the opinion section. You can also find the Press Gallery on SoundCloud or iTunes or TuneIn Radio. You can subscribe on these various uh, platforms and each Friday a new edition will be delivered to you for free. I'm Sarah O'Donnell. Thanks for listening. And I hope you'll join us again next week in the Press Gallery.